So today's Bible reading is from Romans chapter 2, verses 12 to 29. Romans chapter 2, verses 12 to 29. Please follow through. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you are you had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is, only, who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from the people, but from God. Amen. May I add my welcome. Good morning, everyone. Particularly if this is your first time or you're visiting with us this morning, it's, it's my joy to welcome. My name is Andis, as Robert has been also uh, repeating on a number of times. Um, if you want to have the seats, there are quite a few seats here at front. Please do come and, and sit down and make yourself um, relatively comfortable. Um, I know, I know uh, the new premises sounds like a promised land. Uh, that's kind of 40 years uh, still, still feels like 40 years um, ahead, away, sorry, yeah, away. But we will get there eventually, hopefully even maybe before November. Um, so great, uh, hope everyone's is seated and, and we, can, we can continue. Um, it's, it's, um, so he, here is my, here's my sort of Sunday morning confession. I like films. I like films, movies, if you're American. Um, sometimes I do feel I am wasting too much time, um, on it instead of reading maybe a few uh, good chapters in a book in the evening. But that's beside the point today. All good action films have this moment in them 
the hero gets to the villain, and the villain is about to experience the wrath and judgment. At which point the villain decides to throw his kind of, you know, last punch by saying, do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? Slightly up. Um, uh, you know, uh, and he says it as if, as if that would be some kind of an out of jail free card for him. Ironically, the hero, hero knows precisely who the villain is, but that's not what got him into the mess. Neither will it get him out of it, because the only thing that matters is what he did. Not who he is, but what he did. Well, last week in Romans 2, we ended with God who will render to each according to his works, verse 6. And because God shows no partiality, verse 11, he will judge those who know God from his creation works, as we saw in chapter 1. And he will judge those who know God's kindness, forbearance and patience much, much more personally. But Paul's opponent in 2 verse 1 is not happy about it. He thinks he is different and, and he should be therefore treated differently. In fact, he claims he will escape the judgment of God. 2 verse 3. It is as if Paul's opponent thinks he has an out-of-jail free card just by saying, do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? Now, Paul, on the other hand, has been saying that it doesn't matter who you are. In fact, I know very well who you are, verse 17. You call yourself a Jew? It doesn't matter. What matters is what you do. And Paul says, you do sin. Go on to verse 12. Verse 12 is um, our key verse um, for today. Verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. In the rest of our passage, Paul spells out the implications for all Jews and Gentiles. He explains how Gentiles perish apart from the law, and that's verses 14 to 16. And then Paul shows how the Jews are judged by the law, verses 17 to 29. So I'm afraid we are still in, in chapter 2 in the segment of bad news. But friends, it's important because Paul's aim, let's keep in mind Paul's aim, in order for the gospel of God to be good news for all who believe, the judgment of God must be bad news for all who sin. Well, this is, this is where we pick up today. Um, God's impartial judgment falls on all who sin. 
Glance again at Akiva, verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Now, verse 12 flows out of the truth found in, in the previous verses. That's why it starts with four. Namely, God shows no partiality. He doesn't have any favorites. Therefore, he will judge all according to the same standards. Now, two important things, two important words actually appear here for the first time in Romans, sin and law. And they both are connected. When you see the word the law, for most part, it's meant Mosaic law, the commandments of God in the Old Testament giving to the people of God through Moses. That's the law. And, and sin, sin is defined by Paul in this passage, I think particularly as breaking that law. Right? So two important words, just remember them, the law and sin. So what Paul is basically saying in verse 12 is that Everyone is liable to the judgment of God because everyone has broken the commandments of God. Well, Paul is keen for uh, the Jews to see that mere possession of the law doesn't make them right with God. Simply hearing the law read out in a synagogue doesn't make them right with God. This wouldn't be a big surprise to the Jews, though. They already knew that the purpose of the law was to obey it. When they failed to un well, what they failed to understand was that to be declared right with God, you had to obey the law perfectly. Well, as we already saw, Paul's Jewish opponent, well, he was pretty relaxed. <laughs> relaxed about the standards he's supposed to meet. If you remember chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, you practice the very same things you judge deserving condemnation, not a too high standard. But what do you do? Now, what do you do when you want to have out of the jail free card so badly? What do you do? You try to find a hole in the prosecutor's argument, in the prosecutor's case. Well, reportedly, reportedly back in the days, at least back in the days, Romans, uh, letter Romans was used as a go-to material in Harvard Law, Harvard Law in Boston, in how to construct a watertight argument, Paul, Paul was set up and pictured as this prosecuting attorney providing his case, or proving, sorry, his case, why everyone is under sin and therefore condemned deserving death. But what, what if Paul's argument is not watertight? What if Paul has made a mistake in his argument? And my friends, verses 14 and 15 seem to be just the case in the Jews' mind. 
The objection that Jews might raise is as follows. Paul, you say that God shows no partiality and is just in his judgment of all people. And here's the objection. But what about the Gentiles? Well, have you heard this objection uh, before? I have. It's not like Paul's opponents sincerely cared about the Gentiles. And here's, here's, here's what the Jew would say. How is it fair that the Gentiles are judged and perishing if they've never heard of God's law and its standards? What about the Gentiles? I've heard this argument before. And I'm not sure whether those people who make that argument sincerely cares about the salvation of them. Again, the Jews don't have a problem with the judgment of God. They simply can't take that when it comes to it, they are in the same boat with the Gentiles. You know, we have the law, but the Gentiles don't. So here's your problem, Paul. So what Paul does is he shows that Gentiles do actually have the law and therefore their judgment is just. So my first point, or maybe first sub point, Gentiles perish apart from the law, not because they don't have it, but precisely because they have the law, but they obey it only occasionally. Class at verse 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do, what the law requires, they are law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. It's, it's kind of a, the verses 14 and 15 are, what the commentators say, kind of really tricky and difficult verses. So let, let, me, let me say what I don't think Paul is saying here and what the verse is saying. I don't think it says that some Gentiles have a good nature and so they are put right with God apart from Christ. You know, you, you may think of your moral and upright, you know, friends back in your home countries, or maybe even here in Riga. You know, he or she doesn't go to church. They don't believe in Jesus. But their life, you know, and their values, they're often more noble than those of many Christians, you know. Well, but I don't think that verse 14 is saying this, okay? Nor, nor is Paul speaking about the Gentile who, you know, who have never heard about Jesus, but their good lives prove that if they did hear the gospel, they would definitely obey it. You know, this is our hypothetical person in the Amazonian jungles, you know, a, a tribal person who has never heard the gospel, you know, but lives a kind of according to the nature and kind of, you know, moral life. Now, I don't think Paul is talking about that person either. Paul is not talking about moral Gentiles who have never heard about God, you know, being saved because they make, but because that, that would make the cross of Christ useless. And that would make Paul's mission trip to Spain 
completely unnecessary. Why go to Spain? Why tell the Gentiles in the West about Jesus? Why bother with the gospel if people can be made right with God in any other way, you know, by nature? In fact, that's not even where Paul is going, actually, with verse 14. His aim is to show the Jews that it's that in a way the Gentiles possess the law. That's Paul's precise focus in verse 14. For, glance again, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are law to themselves. In other words, the Gentiles are able to do what the law commands. That's Paul's point. The Gentiles are able to do what the law commands. I know of a family in my hometown. The wife runs the local hospital um, and she is you know, helping number of people every day to keep their lives. And, and husband, husband is a physio and, and sports trainer still. They have managed to stay married uh, and be faithful to one another. Um, and um, they have raised two daughters that are also sort of very, very sort of outward looking, caring for people, um, helping many people in a way. But they managed to do all of it without Jesus. No Jesus necessary to live such life. And I think, I think that family, in my mind, so my, from my childhood, our family friends, I think they are a perfect example of someone doing what the law requires by nature. Now, some would disagree with me on this. You know, they would say, no, no, the phrase by nature, it looks back to the Gentiles not having the law by nature. You know, they, they're separated from Israel, you know, out of the covenant. You know, they don't have the law by nature. I personally don't think it's a big problem. You know, they're saying that Gentiles do what the law requires by nature. Why? Because Paul implies that the Gentiles' obedience is only ever occasional. It's not perfect anyway. And as such, the occasional obedience doesn't save them. Well, nevertheless, the phrase by nature is important because how on earth are non-Christian friends are able to do what God says if they have never read what God says? And I, I think verse 15 helps us to make a better sense of it. Glad at verse 15. They, the Gentiles, show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Our gentle non-believing friends are able to occasionally obey God's moral will, not because they have read the Bible or they have heard a sermon online, but because God has written his moral code on their hearts and on the hearts of 
every human being. Now, how do we know it? How do we know that's the case? Their conscience, their conscience bears witness to it. It makes them feel a certain way, depending on what they have done. Think about it. When they have helped their neighbor to fetch a cat from the tree, their conscience rewards them and it says, you have done a good deed today. But when they steal the neighbor's apples during night, their conscience and their conflicting thoughts accuse them, you have done a bad deed today. I think that's how it works in a very simple way. And I think we should distinguish between this and God changing a person's heart by the Spirit. And again, some, some kind of import, some import Jeremiah 31 in these verses um, and say, well, Paul talks about the person that kind of claim, you know, receives the promise and, and claims the promise um, and, and gets the law written on their hearts. And that, my friends, describes God making someone Christian by the Spirit changing the heart. But I don't think Paul says it here because he doesn't say that the law is written on a person's heart. Did you, did you notice how Paul puts his, or phrases it, the work, the work of the law? So that the Gentile non-believers have the law only in a sense that they know God's moral will. It's still on the outside. Their conscience bears witness to it, and God's final judgment will confirm it. Verse 16, on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of man's heart, uh, of man by Christ Jesus. Now, I'm, I'm, quite, I'm quite aware that, you know, these verses, I mean, and chapter 2, is quite technical. It, is, it has taken me some time. So let me, let me summarize, but we, but before we move on, uh, let me summarize this for us. We have seen so far that the Gentiles, and, and, and well, let me back up. Paul, Paul is acting in this, in this chapter as a pro, um, prosecuting attorney. He wants to establish a charge that everyone the Jew and the Gentile, everyone is under sin and therefore liable to God's just judgment. Paul's Jewish opponent, however, he wants to remind Paul of who he is. Do you know who I am? He's under law, unlike the Gentiles, and, and therefore he should be treated differently. Paul, however, explains that God is right in treating all equally because in a way all have law and all fail to obey it perfectly. So that's what I think Paul has been doing in the second half of uh, chapter so far. And I think it's, it's worth remembering, guys, it's worth remembering Paul's aim. He doesn't enjoy condemning everyone to death. His aim is preaching of the gospel. 
the good news of the risen King, Jesus, who is Christ, our Lord, so that all who believe in the gospel would be saved. But again, in order for the gospel of God to be good news for all who believe, the judgment of God must be bad news for all who sin. And for the occasional law-obedient Gentile, yes, and for the moral and religious Jew who is breaking the law. So that kind of takes us to verse 17, and so much more briefly, here is my second point. I'm not sure much more briefly, but anyways, here's my second point. Jews are judged by the law because they are breaking it. So that's from verses 17. Well, if, if you look at that section, 17 and 29, I think Paul's main point can be summed up by taking together verse 23. And, and or 17 and 23. You know, if you look at 17, you call yourself a law-abiding, um, in God-boasting Jew. And 23, well, in real life, you dishonor God by breaking the law. So that's Paul's main, main point. And in verses 21 and 22, Paul gives a few examples of how the Jew is in fact breaking the law. But before Paul accuses him of it, he also confirms the special privileges that Israel as a nation enjoys. So, so let, let's see some of these privileges before we, we, we go to the accusation. Verse 18, you know, these are people who know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. And we are meant to conclude, of course, Israel indeed was in an extraordinary position. The problem was they didn't see that with great privileges, <laughs> comes also great responsibility. They didn't practice what they preached. The great 20th century British pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones makes a connection and shows how this applies to us as professing Christians. Here's a slightly uh, lengthy quote. As you read your Bible day by day, do you apply the truth to yourself? What is your motive when you read the Bible? Is it just to have a knowledge of it so that you can show others how much you know and argue with them? Or are you applying the truth to yourself? As you read, say to yourself, this is me. What is it saying about me? All the scriptures, uh, sorry, allow the scripture to search you. Otherwise, it can be very dangerous. Well, there is a sense in which the more you know of the Bible, the more dangerous it is for you if you do not apply it to yourself. So that's another way of reminding even us 
that we must practice what we preach. Well, but how did the Jews uh, do it? How did the Jews fail? Remember, they, they practice the very same things they condemned. And here Paul puts his finger on some of them. You see them in these verses. Stealing, adultery, and sacrilege, meaning robbing temples. These three apparently are classic examples of Israel's rebellion in the Old Testament. Well, the point is that all of those things can be done in different levels of visibility. Here Tim Keller applies also this to God's covenant people in the New Testament, and he calls it um, idolatry of religion. Now, Keller highlights two most common ways of breaking the law. Sorry, Edmunds, you can't come here, sorry. Two most common ways of breaking the law. So first, there is occasional sort of, um, you know, outright hypocrisy. This can be spectacular, you know, a pastor who's having an affair or, or, or an elder co committing fraud at work. Or, you know, everyday things like stealing extra time in our lunch break or forgetting to include some items on our tax form, many ways. But second, Keller says, there are the, you know, the continuous sins of our sort of heart and motives. It's not what you do physically. You might not be sleeping with, you know, anyone who's not your spouse, but what about looking at the, the woman lustfully or kind of the other way around? Jesus says in the Sermon of the Mount, you have already committed adultery with her in your hearts. And I, I think Tim Keller really sort of puts his finger on something here as he makes the distinction between morality, you know, content of the law, and moralism, the system of salvation. You know, when you turn morality into moralism, you make something good into God. Did you follow that? When you turn morality, which is good, it's a, it's a content of the law, into moralism, you make something good into God. You know, the, f the, the fatal... You know, the fatal weakness of moralism is that it is a God that cannot protect or prevent the heart from sinning. It can't. All it can do is seek to hide the sin. My friends, religiosity has no answers to and no power to remove selfishness, lust, anger, envy, pride, Anxiety, no chance. That is something that Paul's opponent just couldn't understand here. You know, the, the crushing result of his opponent's hypocrisy was that it dishonored God. In the same way, Christian moralism dishonors God. And it's, it's distasteful to those outside of faith. And so God's name 
is blasphemed. Think about it. Well, I kind of I I was thinking back to one of these occasions um, in my life as a young Christian. I somehow ended up in the the protest against legalizing same-sex marriage. I don't even know how I ended up there. And I think you know you know there were all sorts of people, not just Christians. Now, just in front of me stood a lady and a man. They kind of knew each other. And, the, the, you know, the lady obviously wanted everyone to know that she's Christian. She was holding this kind of poster. Uh, and that is why her next move really struck me. At some point, she turned to the man next to him. In a ra- and in a rather judgmental tone, she said, I see that you're not walking in a spirit. Kind of out of blue, out of blue completely. It was it was so ironic. Well, she was holding, you know, in her hand, you know, a sign that basically said, you know, keep, you know, keep clear of gays. When her life and conduct said the very same thing about herself. Now she was a living, she was living as an advertisement of for God as a keep clear sign, you know, don't come near me sign. It's a very ironic example, I think. But what, guys, what about us? What about us today? Just reflect, is our humility, um, love in hard situations, you know, grace under pressure and, and so on, is, is, are all those things obvious? For others to see. Will people who observe our lives will say, you know, I, I want the same. I want this. I want what this person has. Or are they only going to be crushed by the demands of Christian moralism? You, you know, you, you're not allowed to do this. You're not allowed to do this, you know, this and this and this. And why are you not doing this and this and this? What about us? Now, what, what, why is it important? Why is that important? Why is it important to ask, answer these questions? So that we would know where we are standing. So that we would know we are really Christian, not religious. That's why. I was once attending the church service where, where the, the visiting pastor from the United States He was hammering home this line for the good part of 35 minutes of his talk. He kept repeating, well, let let me see if I can kind of get the accent there. Are you Christian or are you religious? (laughs) And he was just keep repeating every other kind of 30 seconds. That's why I remember this like 15 years later. Are you Christian or are you religious? But ironically, ironically, for, for what I can recall, the room was filled with people, a lot of people, that I would say were quite religious. And they only thought that they are Christian. So I don't, I don't know if it ended well for the speaker, you know, by, by the end of, end of his talk and the service. I mean, I, ironically, I remember how once I preached, 
in a similar situation, and I I chose a topic of um, sort of making my case of the you know biblical case for singleness. That actually Paul says in Corinthians that to be single is not bad at all. It's actually it's good. And after the service, this this nice grandma pulled me aside and said, Pastor, Pastor, um, you know I am so, you know I'm you know I'm so happy that my daughter wasn't here today. <laughs> Anyways, you have many many people that think they're, they're Christian, but they're simply religious. Yeah, he mentioned this is the most horrifying message I've ever heard, or something like that. Um, anyways, anyways, friends, Paul is very keen to challenge the false assurance of his opponent, of his religious opponent. If you are breaking the law, you are not truly a Jew. And I think that's from verses 25. Look, look with me. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Now, Paul brings in another kind of, another um, characteristic, sorry, another characteristic of the Old Testament. So we had law, and now he brings in circumcision. Now, in, in detail, you might want to ask some of our medical students about the circumcision. Uh, I'm going to spare these details to you at the moment. But Paul continues his line of thought here. Merely having the law and circumcision doesn't exempt you from God's judgment. And a Jew would indeed appeal to his circumcision as sign of his membership, you know, of God's people. But Paul says that the lawbreakers are actually uncircumcised. Circumcision, you see, always, always coupled with the obligation to obey. Otherwise, it doesn't matter. So by breaking God's law, the Jews make their membership badge completely invalid. Well, that in itself is, I think it's quite challenging to hear. It was very challenging to hear for the Paul's opponent. Well, what is truly shocking are the statements about the Gentiles in verses 26 and 27. Not only a law-keeping Gentile be seen as a true Jew, but also he will judge the circumcised Jewish lawbreaker. Truly shocking. No wonder, uh, you know, we get a sense in Romans that the Jews didn't like Paul very much. You know, he seems to be demolishing hundreds of years of Jewish heritage and privilege, where in fact Paul was upholding the Old Testament teaching about what makes truly Jewish. And you can see that in the final verses of our passage. The false Jew had only the outward circumcision on the, you know, of the flesh, according to the written code. And this received the praise of men. But on the flip side, the true Jew is characterized by inward circumcision of the heart, 
by the Spirit and receives what? Praise from God. Well, here is our conclusion for today. Because of their law-breaking and because of their, you know, dependence on the outward sign rather than on the inward, you know, devotion to God, the Jews have no excuse. They're equally guilty. They are in the same boat as the rest of the humankind, facing the wrath of God, both now and on the judgment day. And I think as we draw, as we draw to close, we, it's helpful to sort of think, right, what, what are the main application lines out of this today? And I, I think the big question we can ask is sort of what do you depend on? What do we depend on? What do we take pride in? What do we depend on? And I think we can sort of distinguish three people groups as we close. Firstly, non-religious, non-believers. You know, like my, my family, friends from my childhood, the doctor's family I mentioned. On, on many, you know, or many your friends, you know, who do not go to church, who do not believe in Jesus. You know, none of us would say they are bad people. We would say that they're good people, good people. Some of them might be living much better lives than, you know, one or two Christian friends we know. And that just shows they have a knowledge of God's moral will. That's simply a confirmation of it. The problem is they obeyed only occasionally and externally. And Paul says that is not enough. It doesn't save. And their conscience bears witness and will prove they're guilty on the judgment day. So again, bad news for non-religious non-believers. The second group is, is religious non-believers. Oh, sorry, um, religious non-believers, yes. You know, th there are people who identify with religion in many cases on the basis of their nationality. You know, so, so if you are British, you know, you're Anglican, or if you're, you're an Italian, you're Catholic, or if you are a Greek, or naturally you're Orthodox. Like my, my friend I some, mentioned some time ago on the plane, you know, of course, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Christian, of course, I'm a Greek, I'm a Christian. And if you suggest to such people that they are still lost, because if they have only this, you know, I'm Greek and I'm Orthodox, I'm, I'm Italian, I'm Catholic, and so on, you know, they are still lost and under God's judgment. If you, if you suggest it to them, that will only insult them and they will feel insult, insulted. You know, the, the whole culture and country is under attack. And then finally, finally, we have, we have religious believers. And I, I think I'm not saying that this is us here today necessarily, but I think we can at least think of some dangers for us here. The dangers is putting one's faith in such things as church membership, baptism, some code of conduct 
some con you know continuous powerful or emotional experience that we have some dramatic occurrences maybe in our lives or maybe that there are some rituals or traditions maybe it's you know beauty of organ music or architecture that we put our faith in or take our pride in it doesn't matter what it is it doesn't save so where, where is hope and i you know i've been giving you heads up again this chapter two is still a territory of a lot of bad news but where is hope it is in the circumcision of our heart by the spirit as paul closes isn't it now paul doesn't explain it here he doesn't explain it here how it happens and therefore we have another cliffhanger for next week so come back next week no matter how tight and loud it is here it's another cliffhanger you know one thing we can be sure of it's the only thing we can be sure of it is certainly something that doesn't come from us we do not contribute to that in any way our inward change that is achieved by God by his spirit but this spirit's work is the main difference between being dead or alive between being Christian or simply religious that is the defining difference and that is the only thing guys that exempts us from being condemned to death so let's hang in for the good news sometime in chapter three let's pray our gracious heavenly father we thank you thank you so much this morning that you want the gospel to be the greatest news on earth for us and for everyone who believes but father you also know that it will be only the case if the judgment your just judgment when it's bad news for all who sin. And Father, we do confess, and we will confess as a church together, that indeed we have sinned and we sin. And apart from your grace, apart from your Spirit's work, apart from the cross, we have to understand that we will perish. Apart from Jesus, we are condemned, condemned deserving death. And so, Father, may, may this word, which is sometimes, as Apostle Peter even says, hard to understand, remain in our hearts. As we go in the next week, as we meet our non-religious, non-believing friends who live seemingly good lives, Father, please let us not be fooled. Let us have humility and grace to suggest to them that they really need Jesus, otherwise they will perish. And Father, when we meet good people who are religious, who live moral lives, but only externally, grant us also discernment and clarity to kindly point them to 
the gospel and to Jesus, because apart from him, even they will perish. And Father, please stay, help us to stay on guard for our own lives, lest we take pride and put our confidence in our experience or our standing or, or, or even sacraments, the Lord's Supper or baptism or many, many other good things. For the let our hope be only in Jesus and the work of your spirit in our lives. We pray those things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.